My name is Adam Roberts, and I'm a vocal coach here in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I'm on a journey to learn the stories behind extraordinary voices of people I know and what makes them unique. Each of my guests has chosen to follow their voice. So this is Cola Voce. Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Season 2 of Cola Voce. I am really excited for today because this is the first time that I have had a guest who I actually don't know super well. Austin Koo, we met when I was in uh, New York shooting a mutual friend of ours for a promotional photo shoot for our company, Resolution Creative, and... Ever since I met you, Austin, all I've seen everywhere is Austin Koo, and everything I've heard is Austin Koo. And so uh, I'm so excited to get to know you a little more. Could you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? What have you been up to? Where did you grow up? Anything that you want to include to uh, let us know a little bit about how you got to the Broadway and beyond. Sure. Uh, thank you. That's so flattering. <laughs> so yeah, I'm Austin Koo. I am a performer based in New York. The long and short of it, I am from St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up doing, you know, like arts and stuff. Took a very roundabout path, which we'll probably get to in the course of this podcast, as far as finding your voice. Went to a few different schools and eventually ended up in New York, where now I do a lot of theater and also, you know, some film, television, commercials, all that stuff, which is probably why you <laughs> have been seeing me in many places, because I do a lot of things, as most of us do, in order to make a living as a performer. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as you already alluded to, this is Colavoce, which in music terminology means follow the voice. And so one of the things that I always ask folks who are on the podcast is, what does that mean to you and what has it meant for you throughout your career? How have you found and followed your voice? I actually, I had kind of a roundabout journey to where I am now, which I think is in a way appropriate for this podcast because it took me a while to find and follow my voice. And part of that, you know, may have to do with my upbringing, you know, my traditional Asian background and my parents. As I mentioned, like I was always a very artistic kid. I started violin when I was very young. And then my older brother did piano. And then he, from piano, he got into singing and show choir and the theater at school. And I sort of followed in his footsteps, doing all of that stuff, as well as like the violin, but then also being pressured to, you know, also have very good grades and do all the science and math and then do pre-med and all this stuff. So as far as not taking up the whole hour, just telling you my biography. You know, I went to Rice University, which is a very good academic school, but also has a very good music school. Rice just down the road from uh, Austin here, Austin, Texas yeah. in Houston. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons I chose it was, you know, I knew of the good music program, but I also knew that it was a good academic school. Also, you know, got some money to go there as an academic student, but then also was like secretly doing like the music stuff on the side and taking the music courses and actually transferred into the music school as a voice major in my sophomore year without telling my parents. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, as so many do. <laughs> yeah. And kind of quietly dropped the pre-med thing because I wasn't hacking like the organic chemistry and the differential equations classes <laughs> with all these super smart people. <laughs> like I was smart, but not that smart, but I was getting the leads in the school musicals and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is what I really love. So um, I ended up transferring into the music school. 
as far as, you know, where my story gets a little bit roundabout, because I transferred in so late, like in the middle of sophomore year, it turned out that I would have had to stay because their music program is a very rigorous program. I think it's like in the top five or something like that, you know, yeah. along with Juilliard and Oberlin and all that and those. So I would have had to stay like six years to finish my undergrad degree. And so that wasn't really going to fly. So anyway, I ended up taking a liberal arts major, an Asian studies major and graduating in four years without completing the music side of the degree. And at that point, I was kind of like still really torn. And, you know, I had never told my parents and still feeling this pressure to do something academic and smart. And so I applied to law school as one does. And so, yeah, back in undergrad. So you're, so you graduate with an Asian studies degree and that's a surprise Mm -hmm. to your parents because they assume you're still doing pre-med. Is that right? I don't remember. At that time, I might've told them I couldn't hack the pre-med and maybe that I was just going to do pre-law. Okay. Got it. That sounds like a likely Austin (laughs) story (laughs) because, you know, law going to law school doesn't necessarily require any specific prerequisite coursework. You just have to have good grades and good LSAT scores generally. And and I believe in California, even you don't even have to go to law school with Kim Kardashian's doing like the baby bar or whatever. Like right, it's, right. it's one of those rare cases, but there aren't necessarily the same requirements as far as going to medical school with certain prerequisites. So, you know, I did well in school generally, and I'm a good test taker. So I went to UC Berkeley for law school with the intention of doing entertainment law and sort of bridging that gap between the arts and something practical. But I was still, you know, like doing the school musicals at Berkeley and then still doing outside musicals at Berkeley and getting an agent and doing modeling in the San Francisco area and doing TV commercials and stuff. And like still always like doing that on the side, but not confident enough to pursue it. So I did that for a little bit, but then still wasn't really like happy and wasn't really like, following my passion, following my voice, as it were, for this podcast. (laughs) And it turned out um, after working for a little bit in-house at an entertainment firm, at the same time, I got offered a company position at a theater there, an ensemble actor position in a theater company in the Bay Area, and then also got laid off from my job in the one of the economic downturns of the the recent decade. You know, so I, I took that acting job, that full-time ensemble acting job, and ended up never going back. You know, I got a children's theater teaching job during the day, and I was doing this regional theater at night and not making nearly as much money, but enjoying my life so much more. And, you know, I got my equity card out of it. And around the same time, I I did like some bank commercial and got my SAG card or AfterCard. And I was like, oh, like this is all sort of coming together in its own way and sort of still stinging from the fact that I never legitimately finished that music degree at Rice. You know, I applied an audition to some graduate programs and I ended up getting into the Boston Conservatory's graduate musical theater program, which was sort of like a way to bring me out of the Bay Area routine and sort of towards New York. And I did that. From there, I had a, you know, a successful showcase for agents and managers and casting directors and stuff that finally gave me the confidence to come to New York and do it. So I've been here for a while, climbing the ladder and doing the thing and, you know, grateful hashtag blessed to uh, now be more or less a full-time performer doing theater and film and TV and commercials and modeling and 
and all those sort of things. And getting into, uh, you know, during pandemic, I got into voiceover as most of us actors have done, you know, set up a little booth in my closet and got a microphone and, and set up and I recorded an audiobook, uh, a couple of audiobooks and doing podcasts and stuff like that. So yeah. Incredible. That's, that's how I found and followed my voice to where I am now. How difficult was it for you to start these degree programs, start in law school? Was it a relief to, you know, find that job in the Bay Area in the acting company and then come to Boston, get your master's from from Boco? How did all of that feel in the moment? You know, I think it felt really good. I have to say going to law school and becoming a lawyer was very challenging academically, mentally. It's not the easiest thing to go through, especially when you don't really have that interest for it. Sure. All of my classmates, of my classmates from UC Berkeley School of Law, I would say half of them less than half of them still do it. Um, and those are the ones that even when we were in law school, we we're like, oh, these are the people that are really passionate about what they want to do, whether it's environmental law or criminal justice or something like that. And, you know, that's just my experience from going to Berkeley, which is a certain type of a student, I think. But uh, there were a lot of us there who were just well achieving people who just like sort of, oh, law school, that sounds you know rewarding. That sounds financially rewarding or stable or whatever, or like a, a thing to do. In my friend group, all of us who were, were like that during law school um, are not doing it anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, I'm an actor. I know someone else who's several others who are now writers, someone else who is now like a, a zoologist or something, people who, are, who had other interests to begin with, if it was animals or the writing aspect of it or that sort of thing, like they ended up going into those things. But I think the rigors of law school and becoming a lawyer and, you know, the financial reward for as long as you're doing it gives you a certain amount of mental fortitude as far as, you know, I did something that's very difficult and challenging and now I can reward myself by doing what I want to do in the end. Well, and I think the story, particularly for any pre-professional artists who might be listening to this, my hope would be that this is a assurance to to folks that there's not one path to doing what it is that we do. You know, I went to school all the way through almost finishing a PhD in music theory. And I thought I wanted to be a music theorist. I thought I wanted to be an academic, you know, and, and things were shown to me that proved that not to be the case. And I couldn't be happier with where I am now and what I'm doing. And there's just not one way to things, even when it seems that way in the moment, I think. And I think your story really illustrates that. Yeah. And even the opposite way around. One of my best friends from high school, she went all the way and did get her PhD in musicology. And she played in the orchestra with me. She played viola and you know, she got her master or bachelor's in viola, then master's and then PhD in specifically Russian music. Wow. Right. And then like, wasn't into it anymore. And now <laughs> went back and got another graduate degree in library science and is now like a head librarian. Amazing. Of, like, a regular library. And That's awesome. Just, you know, that just like, <laughs> not in music anymore at all with a PhD in musicology and just like taking care of a library because she just loves books. 
Incredible. And I think that that's, you know, when I left my PhD program in music theory, part of the reason was because musical theater was what I really wanted to be primarily focused on. And at at least at the time, that literature was not considered necessarily worthy, if you will, of academic study, right? Which, of course, I thought was ridiculous. And so I (laughs) left. And I think that things reveal themselves that way, you know? So when you got to New York, Can you talk about some of the projects you've done and what your experiences have been like with those? Sure. Well, my my journey has been a little roundabout and slow, as I've alluded to already. And even in New York, too, I think it's been a sort of a a slow and steady turtle versus the hare kind of thing, like climbing the ladder. I did a lot of regional theater at first, like going out and going to different cities to do um, smaller theater companies out there. And then, you know, working my way up to doing some tours some of my, I guess, more notable credits, thinking chronological order. I did a Midwest tour of Miss Saigon, which was prior to the current Broadway revival. And then I did the Broadway tour of the Broadway play Chinglish, which was sort of a big, a big break for me, which introduced me to David Henry Huang, who's, you know, one of our um, most prolific and prestigious Asian American writers, um, playwrights today. And Lee Silverman, who directed that, and it collaborates with with David Henry Huang a lot, which was a great uh, introduction for me to those people because of my bilingual skills, because um, I grew up speaking um, Chinese at home, and because of my Asian studies degree too. I also sure. took it in college, so that was a great thing for me to do. Was that so? I did the Broadway tour Chinglish, and from there, having sort of a major play credit on your resume helps, I think, a lot in the TV film world. So then I started to get some TV film credits, and you know, I've been on a few shows that I think are now done, but you know, I had small parts on The Affair, Younger, Sneaky Pete. Homeland, Billions, oh, Billions is still on. Anyway, and then I did the off-Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures, directed by John Doyle at Classic Stage Company, who is also an amazing person to work with. Now, Pacific Overtures, for those who are listening, who may know musical theater, but may not be quite in the trenches, is a musical by, uh, co-written by Stephen Sondheim, or scored music composed by Stephen Sondheim, who just passed earlier. Well, I guess now we're in the new year. So who just passed late last year? Could you talk a little bit about that experience of being in a in a Sondheim musical? Obviously, Stephen Sondheim is a white composer who wrote this musical called Pacific Overtures that a lot of folks don't necessarily know as well as perhaps some of his other more well-known musicals like Into the Woods or Sweeney Todd, for example. John Doyle is a white British director. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like as an Asian American actor working on a piece that is also very much about... um, Well, talk a little bit about what it's about. I'll let you do that. (laughs) Sure. You know, what's interesting about that is, you know, the majority of the canon of musical theater is written and created by white men. So even when we look at The King and I, Flower Drum Song, Miss Saigon, you know, these are all written by white men and traditionally staged by white men in history. So that's sort of where we're coming from already. So it's not it's not like you're coming in, I am coming into something like, oh, shocked that, oh, this is the way that it's being done. It's sort of like what we're used to, right? So we have to sort of set that as the understanding of of the default already. So we're going into it with that. But Pacific Overtures, it sort of chronicles the transition of the Japanese empire from sort of like the transition of the feudal times into the modern era. 
So it starts off, you know, with the shoguns and like the feudal stuff. And then sort of you sort of start to see like Western things coming in. And then they're sort of catering to Western sailors coming in and then the tourists. And then things are modernizing and changing up to like suddenly we're like now today, like Sony, Mitsubishi technology and, and, and things like that. So you sort of see through a series of vignettes how the people and the culture responded to the Western influence. So it, it also is a show about from sort of a, a Western point of view as well. But it's interesting the time that we're in because we are now in the past, whatever, 10, 20 years, really seeing underrepresented cultures sort of like speaking up for themselves, you know, finding their voice, following their voice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the people who are the kinds of people who would be responsive to that and aware of that are responsive and aware of that, uh, you know, with John Doyle being one of those people, he's a highly collaborative director, you know, allows the actors to have input in the room. You know, we all workshop ideas and bring up things. And, you know, one of the people was Japanese and was talking about, oh, do you want us to all, maybe we, maybe we do sort of like a more traditional walk at the beginning and then it changed our walk changes. And he's like, oh, that's a great idea. Like, do you want to show, like show everyone and like, we can all discuss it and all try it and like do this. And oh, let's play with using the, you know, those like wooden block sandals with yeah. the, the socks with like the toe thing. And like, we'll, we'll play with that and see how that changes everybody. And then, you know, we'll use it or not use it. So it was a great, great, great experience. And before I was just saying that um, I think ultimately the goal of a New York actor is to perform in New York and be seen in New York, you know, if you say Broadway is sort of like the ultimate goal as far as financial, commercial success, Broadway, and then off-Broadway sort of being the stepsister or whatever, like the uh, sometimes prestigious, sometimes experimental, wacky, auteur kind of theatrical stuff. So I was saying, so I did like regional and then tours, and then that was able to, you know, get me some credit and some eyes on my work for doing off-Broadway and television. And uh, yeah, so Pacific Overtures was a huge thing. And then I got to work with David Henry Huang and Lee Silverman again when we premiered this new show called Soft Power, which then we tried out out of town and it was successful. And then we came and we did it off-Broadway at the Public Theater, which um, is a very prestigious off-Broadway theater where Hamilton started, where a chorus line started. And so that brings us up to pandemic, which sort of we are talking about, we were, we are talking about soft power continuing on, doing some revisions, uh, hopefully coming to Broadway. But of course that was sort of stymied by pandemic. But then during pandemic, interestingly enough, the Pacific Overtures came back around because they had Sondheim's 90th birthday celebration concert online. And so they asked me and a, a couple of others from the cast to do Sondheim's favorite number, which is Someone in a Tree, which is from Pacific Overtures. We, who had done it in the show at Classic Stage, were asked to do it for the YouTube concert, which went over exceedingly well, um, some technical hiccups you know from the show side aside it started a little late but the show went over very well and was very well reviewed and our particular number was very well reviewed and the New York Times actually singled us out as like one of the best virtual theater things of 2020 um so that was very honored 
for us. And I'll say one of the things I thought was so especially great about that number was there was so much, I felt that you all, there was so much connection between each of you, despite it being over Zoom. And for people who aren't actors or in the theater, I think that they might not understand that connection is so important as an actor, as a performer, and that visceral quality of, of being on stage or on screen with the people that you're performing with. And, and you all were able to really make this amazing connected experience with someone in a tree, I think, uh, during that concert celebration that was so incredible. So I completely agree with that. I thought it was amazing. Thank you so much. And, you know, I guess it's just fortunate that we had just done the show. So it was, we had that connection, I guess, built in to the performance that ended up happening over Zoom. And for anybody who's listening, it's called Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration. You can find it online on YouTube. <laughs> Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Yeah. And I also think tangentially, I've also thought it's just like Stephen Sondheim for, you know, his favorite number that he's ever written to be one that the vast majority of people who probably know his work in some way may never have heard. Just kind of so perfect for his personality, you know, and what a wonderful song and score. Yeah. yeah um, for those who aren't familiar with it. So someone in a tree, it, I think it's, I, I don't want to misquote, but I, you know, I can only assume it's probably one of his favorite numbers from what I've read is just because of the song itself is sort of in a way can be metaphorical to the uh, storytelling process itself. So it's about in the show, there's a treaty being signed between the Japanese and the Westerners in a treaty house. And so the story of the treaty signing is told from three points of view from a boy, which was my character, who climbed a tree outside and is looking in through the window. So he sees glimpses of what happened. And there's also a Japanese soldier who was placed under the floorboards in case things went, went awry, he could pop up and like slash and he's hearing things. And then also much later on, me as an old man, I'm recalling my memory of what I saw in the tree. So it's sort of basically piecing together what happened from three different points of view and distorted by memory. In a way, it's sort of like what storytelling is doing, right? You're telling stories from different points of view and sometimes, you know, altered through different perspectives and trying to piece together a story. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. So we've talked a lot about the work that you have done mm -hmm. in your career. And I'm interested to know, you know, the word representation, as you mentioned, in the past 10 or 20 years, and perhaps even more so in the past two years, has really become a word that has thankfully gained prominence in all, I would say, circles of the theater world. And I'm interested to know, particularly in the context of all of the Asian-related discrimination and criminality that has been happening in the world. As an Asian American actor, this I could be a whole <laughs> 10 podcasts episodes, I'm sure. Why is representation important for you? And what does it mean to be a member of a community that is not only underrepresented, but is also being targeted with hate and being an actor in the world of theater, film, TV, who is well known? What kind of responsibility does that carry? How does that feel? That was a very long question. <laughs> oh gosh, well known, how flattering, <laughs> semi well known. That's interesting because it's sort of the second time in, in as many weeks as I've been asked what representation means to me. I just did a photo shoot for this project called Broadway Asian Men, and they just released a calendar 
of <laughs> a, a few of us Asian male actors presenting Asian men as leading men and not as sort of like the nerdy sidekick or the emasculated sort of thing that's sort of a stereotype. And one of the things, I guess one of the pages has a, a page on representation and I was asked to submit a statement on what representation means to me. And representation to me is being able to see yourself up there, whoever you are, you know, like showing everybody that they can do anything. And a lot of times we need that because like in my instance, I was saying, you know, it wasn't very encouraged to do arts growing up as a career because, you know, my parents said like, look around, who's a famous Asian singer? Like nobody, right? In America the opportunities aren't there. We don't see it. So we don't believe it can happen for you. And a child will see that and feel the same way versus, you know, a child who comes to Pacific Overtures or Soft Power or, you know, even a non-Asian show that sees Asian people in it will say, oh, there's me, you know, like my niece and nephew who go see Moana or go see whatever. And they're like, oh, look, she looks like me, you know, or go to see my friend who was playing Cinderella in a regional production of Cinderella, who is Asian. They're like, oh, she looks like me. Like, oh, I can be Cinderella. You know, Cinderella doesn't have to be blonde. I think that's important for sort of like the next generation and for continuing to push the needle forward representation, having all people represented and to show that to audiences and give them that inspiration and aspiration. This is a question I asked last year, uh, Jay Quinton Johnson. How do you think that the writing process not the writing process, but the people who are writing fit into that? Because we already talked a little bit about how the vast majority of writers of musical theater, pretty much all writers of musical theater that have gotten the most press time, the most stage time have been white men. What are your thoughts about the positioning and the importance of representation among the creators in terms of the writers of these pieces? Oh, yeah, that's huge. I think that's just as important as having representation on the performing side, because it is a like a trickle down effect. And like we were talking about Pacific Overtures, King and I or whatever, our stories from already a Western perspective and a Western writing, regardless of who directs them or who acts in them. Um, so the stories themselves have to have that diverse perspective to really um, have true diverse representation. So I think one of the great things about you know, what we're talking about in more recent times, especially in the theater world, is having more different points of view writing and behind the table. So then the stories themselves from the beginning have diverse points of view. And then when you get some diverse people behind the table and the creative team directing and designing and things like that, then you have those different points of view too. And then the final sort of icing is actually having a diverse company of actors in order to present different points of view. And I think the whole point of it is that to diversify the stories that are being told and the perspectives that they're being told from, because that's really what is going to change people's minds, right? Because if there's a story that's about just a very sort of generic uh, waspy family, right? And then you throw in some sort of colorblind hashtag colorblind casting, like, you know, oh, a black friend, an Asian sister or something. Sure, you know, that's that's great in audiences being able to say, oh, look, this is a diverse company, like it's reflecting the world. But also like those actors are still playing bland characters that aren't necessarily reflecting anything of that minority experience. If that character doesn't have any 
lines or any storyline that relates to how that might in real life reflect them being that Black person living in the Waspy community or that Asian woman married to the white man, maybe experiencing microaggressions from his parents or something like that, you know? So you're not really getting an authentic experience for the audience um, of sort of seeing what that perspective is really like. You're just seeing them plugged in somewhere, which is better than nothing. But I think the end goal is to really get a true diverse array of voices. I love that. Thank you for tying that in all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Not even requested. Now, from a logistical perspective, you've seen the insides of how a lot of these industries work, whether it be TV, film, Broadway. What do you think from a logistical perspective is necessary for these changes to happen that we need to see? Is that incumbent on the producers? Is that incumbent? Who shares in that responsibility? What, what in your mind needs to happen? That's hard. Um, because the status quo maintains the status quo for a reason, right? You know, it's hard to get into those rooms. Yeah, it needs to trickle down from the top. And then how do you get in to the top? I mean, offhand, I'd like to say, you know, in a way you could maybe say some of the power can come to audiences in what they choose to support with their dollars and what they choose to support with their social media. That's one way that all of us can continue to do our part in supporting theater that shows diverse viewpoints and diverse companies and shows a commitment to progress in those ways. Going to see those shows, to support those shows and support those shows financially, but then also by word of mouth and publicity and social media. And that can change things. Certainly the Hamilton effect, right? People loved Hamilton. It became a hit. And now, you know, everyone's trying to make the next Hamilton and everyone's now like including those Hamilton actors in all sorts of projects. And they're, you know, all famous now and everybody wants to get in that show. And that's amazing. And that that's great. And that's because audiences loved it. And so that's something that we can do. And, and that can, I don't know if the phrase will be trickle up, trickle up to the powers that be to be like, oh, oh, wow, this is something that people are responding to. So let's make more of this, you know? And then those people can ultimately have power as far as a long game. Those people can then have power to get involved in other projects and produce other projects. Lin-Manuel Miranda can all of a sudden become, you know, like a Disney creator and like make all these great animated movies that feature Latina experiences because of the success of something like Hamilton. So there is a a trickle up effect in that way. And so I I think it's just we need to do what we can to support diverse storytelling and hopefully encourage, I guess, the holding companies to, you know, saying that they are going to diversify their stories and also diversify like their boards and the selections of shows that they're going to do that year and the directors that they choose to have women and to have people of color as directors too and, and on creative teams. So here is a big existential question. <laughs> Are you happy with the decisions you've made throughout your career? I am so happy. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it's it's funny. I would say among my friend group, I don't know, it comes up every once in a while. You know, I did take a long windy road um, and it was challenging and I did get a late start compared to some of my current peers in the industry, but I feel like I have a supremely happy life. And isn't that sort of like the goal of, life, I guess, Isn't it? is to be happy, right? I can pay my bills with what I do. 
you know, I'm on the up and up. I may not be, you know, super rich or famous or anything yet, but I enjoy what I do and I do what I enjoy and I'm able to pay my bills by it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Sort of the who could ask for anything more moment, right? <laughs> well, there, I mean, there's always more, <laughs> <support>, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, my last question for you is then what are your, what are your dreams for the future? Yeah, I think it's always an up and up. One of my favorite quotes is, I believe, Martha Graham. I'm probably going to paraphrase it totally incorrectly, but it's something about, you know, like the true artist is never satisfied. There's always a queer dissatisfaction that keeps us moving and keeps us more alive than others. And I think that is, you know, like you're always chasing something, um, you know, actors want to be directors, directors want to be producers, you book a Broadway show, you want to book a TV show, you book a TV show, you want to be a, be a movie star, who knows. But yeah, I would love for in the near future, at least, you know, I would love for soft power to go to Broadway. That would be an amazing experience for all of us. I would love to book like a lead on a TV show. You know, I've done smaller parts and guest stars, but not like one of the lead characters. I would love to be in like an ensemble show and have a queer Asian character that's sort of tailored on my own experiences and be able to share that viewpoint out there. In the long run, I mean, oh, we didn't we didn't speak to it yet, or I didn't speak to it yet. Also during pandemic, a really cool thing that happened was the Soft Power album came out. And by way of your listeners, the current trend is for the producer, the engineer to be nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Musical Album when there's a in that category. And then also for the lead actors of the musical to also be nominated for that album. For the Grammy, right? Yeah. And so me, as one of the principals of Soft Power, I got nominated along with the album for Best Musical Theater Album last year. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you, yes. So I have a, a Grammy nomination. I'm a Grammy Award-nominated <laughs> performer, which is crazy. And who knows, like, you know, if that would have had more weight, if, you know, the industry were still up and running at the time, or if it will when it comes back, or if it has already, and I just don't necessarily know whatever weight that it has on my resume or that my reps are using it or whatever. But, you know, certainly down the line, that would be after goals to have more major award nominations and awards, you know, the Tony Award, the Emmy Award, the Oscar Award, all those things, SAG Awards, Golden Globes. Well, but, we'll know, have to talk again after you uh, and do an episode <laughs> two after you have your Tony for the soft power when it's on Broadway. We put <laughs> we'll it out see. there into the world, right? <laughs> we'll see. And, you know, and the awards themselves are not necessarily indicators of, of anything other than the clout that they give a person for choosing projects and for their profile for being involved in projects is really what is great about those kinds of awards and publicity. So we started this podcast talking about how you were not going down the road of musical theater in your academic life, how you were going down the road of pre-med and you're going down the road of law. And you had said that that was very much influenced by your sort of traditional Asian related upbringing. And I'm curious to know, what do your parents think now? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's really interesting because there's music on both sides of my family. My mother sang in like a Chinese girls group when she was growing up. My father sang in choir in college and picked his American name based off of his favorite song that he sang in choir that he had the solo for. Wow. Both my grandfathers both sang Chinese opera. Music has always run in my family, but 
I think there's been this thing where it's always been pushed aside for the more practical choice, right? You know, my parents came to America and my dad is an engineer or was an engineer, retired, you know, but always sang on the side karaoke and my mom too. And, you know, they were known as singers in the community and dancers. They actually met in a dance class at university. And so, you know, they would always go to these like community dances and be like the stars and like dancing and singing and all this stuff. But then when it came to their kids, you know, they had us do it on the side, but then we were never encouraged to do it as a career, you know, because it wasn't safe. It wasn't practical. That's not what they came to America to, you know, provide for their kids. They wanted us to have really stable, successful careers. So it's, it's interesting. It's been sort of up and down, like when there's something good to report, it's, oh yeah, we're so proud. Like we're telling all our friends and sharing the articles on all our friends or whatever, whatever. But then if I haven't reported something in a while, oh, so what's going on? Like, how are auditions? Like, what are you going to be on? Or, you know, like, oh, maybe you should like get another job. Like, is this working out? It's like, okay, calm down. Patience. (laughs) Are you not seeing me doing okay? Like, and it's just interesting because I mean, I feel pressure externally, but I don't feel that pressure internally anymore as a result of that, because I think of the journey that I've gone through and growing up and coming into my own and becoming an adult and being a lawyer and all the things that I did that, like I said earlier in the podcast, like giving me the fortitude to sort of like resist the external pressures. And so they're hot and cold about it, but I'm able to still pursue my own path regardless of that. In a happy way, which is, way. couldn't I mean, isn't that, like you said, that's the brass ring, right? <laughs> Austin, thank you so much for, first of all, agreeing to be the first uh, guest on this season of Colavoce and uh, for everything you've shared today. It was really an honor to get to know you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me and happy new year to you and all of your listeners. And happy new year to you as well. And we look forward to seeing you on next month's episode. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Cola Voce. And until next time, remember, follow your heart and follow your voice.